Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. Psalm chapter 20 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, um, turn with me to Psalm chapter 20. And uh, if you're new or newer with us uh, here at Green Hill Church, uh, typically when I preach, I'm preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, But currently right now, uh, we have just launched into... Uh, what we're calling an Experiencing God uh, study. Uh, there's a, a Bible study that uh, close to 300 people uh, here at the church, uh, ages 11 all the way up to uh, in their 80s, uh, are participating in and going through that. And uh, we've been through week one, and uh, groups will start meeting tonight uh, for, for week two. But uh, as we have decided collectively as a church to go through this series Um, I felt like it would be good for me uh, to preach through uh, this uh, collectively for us uh, as a church here in in our corporate gathering of worship. And so uh, what I've decided to do is each week of the study, uh, there is a scripture memory verse uh, that's tied to the lesson. And so uh, each week I'll be preaching that text, uh, that scripture memory verse and the the scripture around it uh, to kind of point our minds, point our eyes uh, together towards this idea of what what does it mean, what does it look like for us? Uh, to experience God. So this morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 20. The the scripture verse uh, is verse 7. We're going to read collectively the whole uh, chapter. But before we do, um, I just, I want to make this statement. Um, As as we consider this idea of experiencing God, tied to us being able to experience God requires a relationship with God. I think we would all agree with that, that if we're going to truly experience God, then there, there, there must be a, a relationship that we have with God. And if we're going to have a relationship with God, there's a sense in which uh, the scripture is very clear that God pursues us, right? God pursues us. But at the same time, in response, um, as we walk in this relationship with him, we pursue after him. We chase after him. We long to know him. And what I believe is that if we're going to be a people that are experiencing God, that are pursuing God, that are following hard after God, as Scripture says, then we will always come to a place in our life where there is um, an intersection, a fork in the road, or um, maybe even a moment that we have this collision of whether or not our lives are fully devoted to him and his ways and his concerns, or whether or not our lives are devoted to ourselves. That's just the reality. If we're going to truly follow hard after God, then there's going to come a point, there's going to be a moment of this collision. Will we live for the concerns of God or will we live for the concerns of man? I believe that God is, is calling us as a people to trust him completely. God calls us to trust him completely and to surrender to him unconditionally. It is only then that we can live our lives in such a manner where we have a greater concern for the concerns of God than the concerns of man. Now, if you have ever been a part of a team or maybe even a youth group or a leadership team, you probably have encountered team-building exercises. Has anybody ever participated in a team-building exercise? And that can be as as small as 
you know, you, you, you get to know one another and you do some activities together to uh, doing a low ropes course or even, you know, a high ropes course where there's a sense in which you're having to trust one another along the way. Well, one of my favorite team building exercises is the trust fall. Has anybody ever done the trust fall before? For those of you who don't know what the trust fall is, um, I'm so glad that your life group decided to sit on the front row this morning, all right? Can we just give it up for these guys? Normally, they're in the very back row of the sanctuary, and they finally got spiritual and came to the front. I'm teasing. But in a trust fall, y'all chose the wrong Sunday to be down front. In a trust fall, essentially what you have is a person who stands up on an object, whether that's a chair or a speaker or something like that. And then you have your team, if you will, that stands down in front, and they put their arms out like this. And then the person that is to fall turns around backwards. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> turns around backwards, right? And then on like the count of three or something like that, they cross their arms so that they don't slap people in the face on their way down. And they simply just lean back. And they fall into the arms of those that are there to catch them. You see, trust is either all or nothing. It's either all or nothing. Trust is resting the full weight of our life. When you fall back in that exercise, you're entrusting the full weight of your body upon those individuals. You see, I believe that God is calling us to trust God in that way. To trust him in such a manner where he has called us to rest the full weight of our lives and our circumstances and our situations and our um, problems or distresses or realities, and we are to put the full weight of that upon God, and watch this, you ready? And not take it back. See, once you fall, there's no turning back. And this is what God is calling us to as a people. This is what it requires of us if we're going to truly experience him. This is what is necessary if we're going to have the concerns of God over the concerns of man as a priority in our lives. See, the only way we will find ourselves prioritizing the concerns of God over the concerns of man is when we get to the point where we fully, completely trust God. So Psalm chapter 20 this morning. Psalm chapter 20. This psalm is a psalm, it's known as a royal psalm. And you'll notice that it's somewhat of a, a prayer, and I'll explain it, but let's read it together. Psalm chapter 20, we'll read the whole chapter. It says this. It says, may the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. Another word for trouble there is distress. May the name of Jacob's God protect you or secure you, as some translations say. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering. Verse 4, may he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. 
In verse 6, now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. And then verse 7, this is the scripture memory. So if you're participating in experiencing God, you should know this. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we what? Take pride in the name of the Lord our God. And then in verse 8, they, the ones that don't, Take pride in the name of the Lord, but rather in chariots and horses, they will collapse and fall. But we who trust in the name of the Lord or take pride in the name of the Lord will rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. May he answer us on the day that we call. This psalm is such a powerful psalm in so many ways. It's, as I said, a royal psalm. And, and quite honestly, what it is, is it's, um, it's this window, if you will, for us to be able to catch a glimpse as to, to what happens um, in, in a ceremony or a, a, a liturgical reading or statement, if you will, that the, the Israelites and the king would go through before they go to battle. So King David, he's king over Israel. They're facing a battle. And what we see in verses 1 through 5, if you notice, It says in verse 1, May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. This is the people of Israel speaking to the king of Israel, King David. And what it is, is it's them articulating, This is our prayer of intercession for you as king. And they're articulating it to him. It's almost like I said, it's like a ceremony that they're going through before they go into battle. May the Lord answer you, King David, in a day of trouble. May the name of Jacob's God protect you, King David. May he send you, King David, help from the sanctuary and sustain you, King David, from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offerings. This is what they're praying. They're praying to God on behalf of their king, but they're telling the king what they're praying. You understand. You see what's, what's taking place in this text. What are they praying? They're praying for God's deliverance, that he would answer them, that he would protect him, that he would send help, that he would sustain them in all of these situations. Now, if you notice in verse 6, it shifts from the plural to the Singular. He says in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. Now scholars tell us that most likely at this point in that ceremony, the Levite, um, the, 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 the priest, if you will, would come along and in response to the prayer that they've articulated to God on behalf of the king, the Levite, the priest, would now say, Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. There's a confidence, there's a trust that God will do what God says that he will do. And it's this declarative declarative statement over the people that God will be victorious. And then in verse 7, the verse that we've memorized this week, it goes back plural again. And if you can just picture this moment with this massive crowd surrounding the king after the Levite has declared victory is certain, the people cry out in unison collectively. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we, we take pride. What? We take pride in the name of the Lord our God. This is the context of what's taking place. And as we consider this 
verse, as we consider this scripture, I believe that we need to get to the place where we can declare collectively as a people and as individuals, while some take pride in this, we take pride in the name of the Lord, our God. Now, if you are reading a different translation, perhaps you're reading the ESV, which is what I've typically been preaching out of, but the scripture memory is in CSB, so I'm preaching out of that, not to confuse us. But in the ESV, it doesn't say take pride in, it says trust in. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Growing up, this is a verse that my mom quoted to me all the time. When she saw me beginning to trust in other things other than God, she would remind me, listen, listen, I know that others trust in these things and you want to trust in these things, but we, you, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He's primary. So how do we think through this text? Well, we need to understand the context. We understand in verse 1 that David, King David, is facing trouble or distress. That's what it says. It says, may the Lord answer you in a day of trouble, a day of distress. For them at that point, their distress, their trouble was that they were facing an army. They were facing a battle, a military conflict. Well, if you asked me if I was King David and I was in charge, and we were facing a military conflict, the number one need that I would put on a list would be chariots and horses. Chariots and horses were the need for battle. That is the, the tanks, if you will, or, or it's, it's the, the most sophisticated military equipment of the time. Really, it boils down to this. Whichever army had the most chariots and the most horses, common sense says wins. And so we have this moment where they're facing this distress, they're facing this reality, their need is chariots, their need is horses, but they recognize that this is man's ways of thinking. They recognize that there's something different, and in verse 7 we see this powerful declaration that reveals a reversal from self-dependence to God-dependence. A recognition that there's something more to this world. That there's something more to our realities. There's something more to what we are walking through. So what does it mean when they write, takes pride in or trust in? The word literally means to keep in memory or to ponder. So when they say some take pride in chariots or some trust in chariots and others in horses, it's literally some ponder on or keep in memory or call to remembrance the number of chariots and the number of horses they have. For instance, King David, we're going to battle. He's like, I know, I'm the king. They said, we have this great army that we're facing. And he says, it's okay, I've done the math. We have 25,000 more chariots and horses than they do. We're going to be okay. That would be common sense. Or, King David, we're going to battle, and David's like, I know, and I'm a little concerned because I did the math, and we have 25,000 less chariots and horses than they do. You see, one leads to a self-confidence that we're going to be okay. The other leads to a worry and anxiety and fear that we're not quite sure if we're going to be okay. 
But either way, we find ourselves distorted in reality as to what God is up to. And so what we see in this moment is King David and the people, rather than calling to mind the things that they possess or the achievements that they have or the skills that they have, they call to memory, they ponder in their minds, they dwell on, you ready, the name of the Lord their God. That's what comes to mind first. So as we think about this idea of what does it mean to trust, what is it that we are placing our trust in in this life, here's a way to decipher that. When you are facing a distress or you are facing a trouble, what comes to your mind as the fix or the help for that trouble? If you're facing a situation of of finances, what comes to your mind? Well, we've got this much in the bank, or we've got this coming up, or we've got this ability to go and work, or we've got this or that. If that's the first thing that comes to your mind, then you might be trusting in something other than the name of the Lord your God. But when you face a reality and the first thing that comes is says, listen, I don't have the resources or I do have the resources, but it doesn't matter what I have or don't have. What matters is that I have God and he sees me and he hears me and he knows me and my life is surrendered and submitted and entrusted to him. Therefore, I know that he's at work and I will be okay. This is what he's saying. And it's a radical shift from an understanding that we see from man's approach versus seeing from God's approach. So when we're faced with stress and we're faced with distress and we're faced with trouble, we're just faced with life. The place where our mind goes to reveals that which we place the trust of our life in. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says a word to us that I think relates to this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says this. He says, but seek first. Not later once you've got it all figured out. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All of these things that you're trusting in and that you're worried about and that you're concerned about, listen, I will provide those for you. Seek first my kingdom. Seek first my righteousness. And I'll take care of the rest. In other words, trust God for the everyday so that you can fix your heart and your mind and your life upon being used for his kingdom. Watch this. You ready? Until we get to the place where we're fully trusting him for all things, we can't be used for his kingdom. Why? Because we're so consumed and concerned about taking care of ourselves with the things that we're trusting in. And there's freedom when we come to the place of submission and surrender and trusting in him. Listen, church, this is why Psalm 20 verse 7 is such an important verse for us. That's why it's important that we memorize it and that we saturate our hearts with it. Because until we can say some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, we will never find ourselves truly on mission for his name and his kingdom. We just won't be. We just won't be. I'm going to take you to another text, Matt, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 8. 
If you get your Bibles, flip over there real quick with me to Mark chapter 8. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And in verse 31, it says that Jesus begins teaching the disciples, quite honestly, a truth that they didn't really want to hear. It says in verse 31, then he began to teach them that it was necessary, right? If you've got your Bible underlined, I've got mine circled, necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected. In other words, Jesus says, I need you to know that there is a necessity that it is necessary for me to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and then I'm going to be killed. But don't worry, I'm going to rise again three days later. Jesus tells them the whole thing. Here's what's coming down the road. And what does the scripture say that Peter, one of the disciples that's with him, does? It says that Peter pulls Jesus aside and is like, Jesus, listen, is all of that really necessary? I mean, think about it. You don't really need to go through all of that. And, and as I started thinking about this, like, it's not that Jesus just said, I'm going to suffer and then I'm going to die. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm coming back to life. Now, we have the perspective of on this side of history, right? And so if we were, like, we think, man, goodness, like, let's go. Way to go, Jesus. Yeah, let's do this. But I think in, in, in Peter's mind, perhaps, and again, this is my imagination at this point, but Peter's hearing him and saying, well, if you're coming back to life three days later, why go through all the suffering? Why go through all the hardship? Why go through the persecution? Why go through the suffering if you're just coming back to life again? You're already alive. Can we just skip that part? And this is what Jesus says. He pulls Peter aside, has a conversation with him, and then he turns to the whole group of disciples and he says this, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. And then listen to these words next. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but rather human concerns. Do you see how all of this is tying together? Peter was unable to trust God, that God was up to something bigger than the circumstance in that moment. And rather than trusting God and saying, you know what, at Jesus' word, I trust. You know what, Jesus, if it's necessary for you to die, then I, I don't like it. I don't want it. I hate it. But goodness, you need to be obedient to what your father is telling you to do. And I'm trusting you in that. But rather, he looks from a human perspective from human concerns, and says, is that really necessary? Praise the Lord that Jesus, the scripture says, had no will of his own, but really his only food or will was to do the will of the Father who sent him. The will of the Father that sent him was that he would go to a cross, and that he would die, and that three days later he would rise from the dead. And Jesus understood it, but Peter and the rest of the disciples, they couldn't see it. Why? Because God was at work behind the scenes. God was at work accomplishing something. God was at work doing something. And what he was at work doing was he was securing Peter's salvation, the other disciples' salvation, your salvation, my salvation, the whole world's salvation, that anyone who would trust in Jesus would not be 
put to shame, but would have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord that Jesus didn't look at Peter and his opinion and say, you know what, that is a good point. If I'm going to come back to life, why die? But isn't that what we do sometimes? Rather than trusting God's sovereign plan and sovereign will and walking in obedience through regardless of what it is, don't we want to shortcut it? Don't we want to do it our way instead of God's way? But this statement right here, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Until we're willing to fully trust God, we will always be concerned with human concerns first. But once we trust God, then all of a sudden we're free to be concerned about God's concerns. Now, as I was wrestling through this text and figuring out how do I preach this song, there are three things that God just kept bringing to my mind. Saying, you must trust me for this. You must trust me for this. You must trust me for this. And so I just want to offer these to you. The first one is this. Are you fully trusting God's plan for your salvation? Are you fully trusting God's plan for your salvation? What do I mean by that? Common sense tells you and tells me that for us to get to heaven, then we have to be good enough. That we have to do enough. That we have to achieve enough. That we need to go to church enough. That we need to, and you can fill in the blank of whatever that might be in your life. But there's something inside of us that tells us, no, 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 no. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. But God's plan says, no, no, no. You don't have to do anything. The only thing that you have to do is recognize that you're a sinner and your sin separates you from God because God is perfect and you are not. And there's no hope for an imperfect person to become perfect on their own. It's just not possible. And so God in his sovereignty and God in his plan sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to this world. And he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He accomplished everything that we couldn't accomplish on our own, and yet he still, it was necessary for him to suffer and to go to the cross and three days later rise from the grave. It's his plan. And this is what our response ought to be. To fully trust in him means this, that we aren't accomplishing anything towards our salvation. You remember the trust fall? When you stand up there in that moment and you're trusting those people to hold you, you trusting God's plan for salvation is you recognizing with your arms crossed like this, there is nothing that I can do for my eternity. When I die, I have no hope except for Jesus Christ. And so you simply cross your arms and in full surrender and trust, you fall into the arms of Jesus who are spread wide on the cross in your place. Listen to this scripture. John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You ready for it? Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. It's impossible. It's impossible. And then in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says this, I, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, I hope to accomplish it, 
or I hope they get eternal life, or I'm going to try with everything I've got to give them eternal life. No, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what I want to trust in. Amen? That's what I want to trust in. Are you fully trusting God's plan for your salvation, not your good behavior, not your religious activity, not whether you've been baptized, not whether you've walked down an aisle, not whether you've in, you fill in the blank, but are you trusting in the fact that you've placed your faith in repentance for salvation in Jesus Christ? Here's the second one. Are you fully trusting God's ways for living? Listen, we're a bunch of good church folk here, right? We're all in agreement for the most part that salvation is through faith and faith alone. Amen. We got that. We want heaven. Let's go. It gets harder when we come to this place of trust where we say God's ways are the only ways and the right ways. And we come under surrender and submission to his ways even when it doesn't make sense to us. When our experience and our desires say something opposite of what scripture says, we we suppress, we, we turn away from those things and come under the, the word of God and the truth of God and we trust God in that. Can I just give you two, uh, listen, I'm just, I'm just trying to walk in obedience here. I'm, I'm going to give you two areas that I think are pertinent for us just in our culture and our world. Finances is one. The scripture says where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And I think finances can become the very thing that enslave us to things other than God. We can learn to trust finances over anything else because we feel secure when our bank account is full, don't we? So here's the question. Are you trusting God's design for finances? Well, what's God's design? God's design is that he owns it all. He does. And he allows us to enjoy what he blesses us with but he longs for us to be good stewards of what he blesses us with. And part of that is we give back, we submit, we surrender. We, uh, scripture says tithe. We give the first percentage to the storehouses to God. And the scripture says, God says, try me out on this if I don't bless you. You see, the common sense side is, well, God's given me so much, and I've got so many bills, and at the end of the month, if there's enough, then I'll be generous with what I have left. But what God asks us to do in God's economy and God's way of things is saying, no, 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 you give first and watch what I do for you for the rest. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things will be provided for you. God pours out I, story after story of people who were in financial hardship, and God simply said, would you just trust me with your finances and give as according to the scripture and how I have planned it and set it aside, and then God pours out abundant blessings on them financially. Are you trusting God for your finances? Second one is this, are you trusting God for God's design for marriage? Are you walking in obedience to God's design for marriage? Listen, we live in a culture that is redefined. It's not redefining, it has redefined what marriage is. And we have a choice as Christians to say, well, you know, that, that, that makes sense. We, we, we need to love everybody. We need to just kind of walk in this manner. No, we need to come back to see what Scripture says. Do we trust God's design or not? And we can talk about it from a homosexuality standpoint, 
But we also need to talk about it from a man and a woman's standpoint. Did you know that in our culture, in our world, the research is telling us that people aren't getting married because they believe that marriage just doesn't work? The age of people getting married is going older and older and older. Well, let me go experience life. Let me go figure out life. Let me go get mature, and then I can come into this marriage relationship. In other words, I'm trusting in chariots, and I'm trusting in horses to figure it all out. Let me get financially stable. Let me get um, some experience. Let me get a job. Let me get a career. Then, then I might be able to settle down and have a relationship. Versus God saying, what about me? What part do I have in this relationship? They're also saying that people are avoiding getting young, uh, married at a young age because it is leading to divorce. And so what they're doing is instead of getting married at a young age, if they're in a relationship, uh, they're doing what we would call cohabitating. In other words, they're experimenting with this idea, let's try it out and see how it works. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, we're not committed. It's okay. But when you step outside of God's design and try it out according to your plan, it doesn't work. Research tells us that if you go through that method or mode of accomplishing it, the divorce rate skyrockets for those individuals if they end up getting married. And I love it when secular culture proves God's design is right. I was recently reading an article in the Wall Street Journal that literally proves, according to secular research, that God's design for marriage works. Here's the title of the article. Too risky to wed in your 20s? Question mark. Not if you avoid cohabitating first. Imagine that. Imagine that. This is the subtitle. Research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Why? Because it's God's design, and God's design works. Do you trust it, though? Do you trust Him? And we could go on and on and all morning long and come up with examples of God's design for the way that we are to live our lives. And the bottom line is this. Do you trust God in it, or do you not? Are you trusting in chariots and horses, or are you trusting in the name of the Lord our God according to His design for life? And then lastly, here's the big one. It's one thing for us to trust God for our salvation. It's another thing to trust God to live right and holy, to honor him and please him. But you ready? Here's where it gets difficult. Are you fully trusting God's kingdom purposes in your life? Meaning this, if you're going to truly trust God, then God has every right at any point to come and intervene in your life and to say, I want to use you to do this. And it's not an interruption when you're fully trusting God. Why? Because you've already said, God, it's never an interruption. And you find yourself at a place where when God does that, it's simply just the next step along the way. See, to trust God means that you understand that God has his concerns and his concerns is his kingdom. And your life is submitted to that. If you look back at Psalm 20, verse 3, there's a verse in there that says this, may he, God, give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. In other words, what a crazy prayer. Would God, like imagine if, if, if we prayed this, God, just grant every desire that's in my heart. That would be a little bit scary if God really granted that, wouldn't it? 
But what we see is that when God takes a person who's fully submitted to him, he takes that and he makes it his and he forms his heart, he forms her heart to be surrendered and submitted to God and his ways. And so watch this. When that prayer is prayed and it's a prayer of a person whose heart is in submission to God, guess what? God grants it because it's in alignment with what God is already up to and what God is already doing. Your desire becomes his desire. And the desires of our heart always point to that which we trust the most. Are you trusting in God? After Jesus tells Peter to get behind me, Satan, he says this. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God is calling you to trust him completely and to surrender to him unconditionally. Would you be willing to pray this prayer with me this morning? Jesus, here is my life. Do with it as you wish for your kingdom and your name. And I will trust you with the rest. Father, I pray right now that as you're working in our hearts and you're drawing us to yourself, can we just say thank you that you are God who indeed is trustworthy. God, we know it. So God, with that, we confess and we say, Lord, we are sorry for the times that we are trusting in chariots and horses rather than you. So Lord, in this moment, I myself, and Lord, I pray for those in this room, Lord, we come before you and we say, Lord, we want to trust you with all that we are. Would you use us as you see fit? Would you bring us to obedience to your ways and your commands. And God, may we be reminded that our salvation is secure, not in what we do, but in what you've done. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, God may be stirring in your heart in some way, some form. Really, the invitation is the invitation to surrender, to trust God in everything. Whether that needs to happen at your chair, whether you need to come and talk to Pastor Casey and myself, and we'd be happy to pray with you and encourage you through that. Whether you want to use this altar as a place of surrender, you respond as the Lord leads this morning. Let's stand. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.